Hello and welcome to The Jewelarian, the podcast for those who love jewels and their stories. With me, Josie Goodbody, jewellery historian and author of the Jemima Fox mystery series, which have just been optioned for adaption to the screen. Hi, I'm thrilled today to be talking to Tessa Packard, who's an incredible jewellery designer, a lovely person. And not only does she work a lot with resetting people's heirlooms, in fact, she did one of my cousins. She created a beautiful ring for my cousin, Sarah Spencer Churchill. But she has innovatively decided for her newest collection, to use a material that is normally used in costume jewellery, but it's plastic and her collection is called Plastic Fantastic. So we are going to be talking about this collection of Tessas, but I'm just going to give you a little bit of background on the use of plastic in jewellery, because actually plastics have been around since the ancient times, which most of us wouldn't know, because nowadays we think of plastic as literally, well, Plastic, but actually the word plastic comes from the Greek and the Latin of plastikos, which means a material is capable of being moulded into various forms. And the first synthetic plastic was actually created in 1907 by Leo Bakeland, and it became known as Bakelite. And in fact, all early types of plastic were called Bakelite. And until the 1920s, they were predominantly used to imitate other materials in jewellery or accessories, such as tortoiseshell and ivory. The low cost allowed designers the freedom to experiment, and costume jewellers loved that innovative materials could literally be moulded and cast into almost anything. In the 1920s and 30s, there was a flurry of plastic jewellery, and a lot of it was thanks to the Depression, where people wanted to buy pieces of jewellery but didn't have the disposable income to do so. And so there was a frenzy of plastic jewellery purchases and creations. There was a man called Joseph of Hollywood, who was one of the main suppliers or designers of costume jewellery for Hollywood. In fact, he made a lot of the jewellery that Vivian Lee wears in Gone with the Wind. And he started to use a lot of plastics in his creations of jewellery. And then there is a very famous costume jewellery brand, which is still around today. The chief designer was a man called Alfred Philippe. And he had actually designed for Van Cleef and Cartier in Paris. And he started making what were known as jelly beans out of loose heights. Lucite was originally created as a plastic and actually Trafari turned some of their jewellery factories in the Second World War into making items for the war. And they started making Lucite windshields. And the ones that hadn't fit the fighter planes were actually turned into the bellies of sterling silver animal brooches such as penguins, birds and fish, and then set with rhinestones. In the 1970s, Yves Saint Laurent used Lucite in his jewellery. And Kenneth J. Lane, who is without doubt one of my favourite costume jewellers, in fact, I'm wearing a lovely big ring now by him with lots of Lucite in, he used a lot of Lucite in his jewellery, along with rhinestones, enamels and other materials. So, Tessa, you, however, are not setting your jewellery, your new collection with rhinestones or glass or anything other than beautiful gemstones with plastic. So please, can you tell me a little bit about your new collection and why you've decided 
to be both innovative and also going back to the old days of, of using plastic in this collection. Totally. Well, I think to answer the sort of first question of why plastic, we have to go back a couple of collections to a collection that we did called Under the Influence, which was very much inspired by famous cocktails from around the world. And instead of buying props to put in the showcases, I decided that I was going to turn my hand to making fake cocktails. And one way of doing that, or probably the most successful way of doing that, is using liquid resin, epoxy resin with epoxy dyes, and pouring them into cocktail glasses with fake sort of cherries and lemons and et cetera, et cetera. And over a couple of days, they set and you can have these wonderful kind of colored cocktails that actually, as a side note, ended up being quite popular for our customers when they came in to look at jewelry. They asked if they could buy the cocktails instead. And, you know, it ended up sort of being a kind of a tangent sort of object that we created for a little bit of time. But that's really where my love or my interest in plastics first started in this kind of epoxy resin form. And I started to play around with it and sort of trying to understand its kind of limitations, also where it sits, sat in the kind of history of objet d'art, homewares. That inevitably led me to sort of read articles about lucite and other forms of plastics and jewellery. And that kind of got me thinking about why it is a material that is not so approached or utilised in the fine jewellery sector in the 21st century, even though it has like a very rich history in the 20th century overall. And then I started thinking, like, how could one make plastics relevant in the 21st century? What would you need to do to elevate this kind of base low material into something that would be categorized or accepted in the fine jewelry sector? Because the more that I sort of play in this industry and work as a jewelry designer, the more I do feel that the sector has opened up to utilizing different materials. But plastic still seems to be one of those things that doesn't really creep into fine jewellery or doesn't really get tackled by fine jewellers, whereas bamboo, wood, porcelain to some extent, shell, you know, there are other things that seem to sort of creep in and seem to be acceptable. Plastic really does seem to have a dirty connotations attached to it. No doubt that's probably because obviously and understandably and quite rightfully, nowadays plastic has a very complicated relationship, both with the planet, but also, you know, in terms of whether or not it's a good material. And actually, I did an interview with the CEO of the kind of design council. And one of the questions I asked her was, what material would you disinvent or uninvent if you could plastic was the first thing that she said so you know it doesn't have a lot of positive connotations necessarily yes but but that's but that's if people are going to be throwing away their jewelry which obviously they're not going to be throwing away your jewelry they're not going to be so I think you know kind of I just got very interested in the idea of plastic jewelry and where plastic sits today and could you reverse the sort of tide of time and somehow elevate designs to a point where they were accepted as fine jewellery but I didn't want to make plastic jewellery because obviously that goes against the whole sort of sustainable kind of angle which we're all as jewellers or designers trying to strive towards and I would say as a footprint generally speaking mine is not very big but any form of manufacturing obviously has a cost attached to it so I looked towards reusing vintage plastic or vintage lucite mounts beads and other kind of components chain etc in an effort to also kind of harness to some extent the aesthetics of the past, an era where plastic jewellery was, you know, much more readily embraced, but also to be able to sort of recycle, upcycle, which I think is probably a better term, because one of the reasons that there is so much 
vintage lucite or vintage plastic jewelry knocking around is that they were made with a plastic that wasn't really recyclable whereas in the 21st century we've got much better at creating plastics that can be melted down and reused but in the 1920s and the 50s the 40s etc this was not a consideration for anyone let alone the kind of fashion industry and no one would really understand that there would be a much bigger price to pay you know fast forward 50 years so it wasn't about being able to melt down these vintage mounts and recreate something it was about having to use them as they were and I kind of as a designer really prefer that challenge I think there's something much more romantic and exciting about it taking something that kind of belonged to the past in an authentic way and kind of recreating it in the 21st century in a language that actually is very personal to me so that kind of answers you know kind of why plastic in a very long-winded way but hopefully sort of explains the trajectory of how I came about it And I think that the last two years when I've been playing with Lucite jewellery and vintage plastic mounts and liquid resin, because some of the pieces in the collection are using resin and setting gemstones in that way. You know, I've really kind of found a sort of new love and interest in the sort of world of costume jewellery. And I've really asked myself, you know, a lot of questions about why it is now that it isn't necessarily as glamorous or embraced as it was once upon a time, even in the eras where fine jewellery was worn just as much as costume jewellery. So I think that it's a really interesting topic that you bring up, Josie, and no doubt we will kind of explore in further detail. Well, I absolutely love costume jewellery. I mean, that last year, I kind of really discovered it with learning. I bought quite a few books on costume jewellery. One, indeed, is from the 1970s, written by this real kind of professor of costume jewellery, it seems. And I mean, it's fascinating how paste as you know, rhinestones were worn way back in the 1700s. And actually, because of the limitations of cutting gemstones, particularly diamonds in those days, they could create basically any shape, size of rhinestone with paste, with a type of glass, and you create absolutely amazing pieces of jewellery. And in fact, in this particular book, he very much says that the haste jewellers were almost more talented in those days than the real jewellers, because they had to use, and they were able to use much more intricate settings and things purely because they were able to, thanks to the tiny size of some of their individual rhinestones. So I got very interested in this and I discovered particularly a kind of 1940s, 50s, 60s jewellery predominantly from America, such as Ken J. Lane and Miriam Haskell, Trifari, Coro. My God, I could go on and on and on. And they really, you know, created old pieces of jewellery that I would never be able to afford to buy. Well, at the moment, can't afford to buy big pieces of jewellery like this ring that I'm wearing, which is kind of a coral turquoise diamond set in gold, enormous, and it's costume, and it's fantastic, and I love it. And I became very interested in it and spent quite a lot of time researching these jewels and buying them on eBay (laughs) coming over from the States. And it really fascinated me, and I definitely do feel the lack of approval in costume jewellery is a shame because it's really magnificent. And it allows an awful lot of people to be able to enjoy jewellery who otherwise might not be able to. I mean, the Princess of Wales used to wear a lot of costume jewellery from Butler and Wilson, for example. She used to mix it in with her kind of royal collection jewels. But on the safety level, of course, you don't go around advertising that it's costume jewellery. But if you lose a piece, it's sad, but it's not the end of the world. Or if a piece gets stolen or something. So, for example, for travelling, although, again, of course, none of us have been doing that very much the last 12 months, costume jewellery is perfect. 
and it's perfect for holidays and sunshine. Although having said that, you have to be very careful with costume jewellery. You can't wear it in the sea. You can't wash your dishes with it. Although, of course, who washes their dishes without wearing marigolds? <laughs> so, you know, you can't actually kind of wear it in the sea, which is a shame. But it is very much the kind of the big, bold pieces are very holiday-esque. A lot of your collection has got a very holiday Florida feel to it. Annoyingly, with a podcast, one can't actually show the pieces, but I'm going to be posting them on my Instagram when I publish this on Saturday, the 1st of May, which is when your collection is launched. Yep. But can you describe some of the pieces? Because actually another thing that we haven't yet mentioned is, of course, the colours that one yes. can get in plastics, yeah. which really are so much fun. And actually one of the things it said that a lot of people loved buying costume jewellery after the recession, plastic jewellery, because not only was it affordable, but it was also beautifully coloured and so would cheer people up in an otherwise pretty drab time of their lives. So can you tell me some of the actual physical cool. inspirations behind the individual pieces? No problem. So as you've touched on, Lucite in particular, well, Bakelite, um, but Lucite as well, they were both American inventions. And Lucite came over the Second World War used for windscreens. And then there was a huge surplus of it afterwards. And plastic essentially became something that was very, very cool in America. It was novel. It was sort of free from any preconceptions regarding its use. So it was this material that people were extremely excited about. And at the same time, you've got you know, a society or a nation that's come out of war, the vibe is ecstatic, it's happy, it's bright, it's bold, it's innovative, it's come out of the dark ages. So for me, it seemed like a very logical place to start America as the kind of source of inspiration for the collection. And narrowing down, distilling down, Florida was the sort of state that I identified as being most perfect as the backdrop for the collection, because at the same time in the 1940s and in the early 50s, there was enormous redevelopment going on and you already have cities like Miami with extraordinary colourful art deco architecture that you know again just kind of emphasises the zeitgeist of the age and what was going on socially in Florida was that there was this whole new culture popping up of outdoor socialising and it tended it perfect to... Be... For now, which is perfect for today, which is the only which way is... we can socialise. Exactly. So ironically, this collection is actually being released a year late because of Very the pandemic. Timely. But it's actually extremely timely because we've sort of come out of like, not that one should compare it to sort of post-war, but, you know, we've come out of 16 months of definite hardship across the world. You know, we're looking for sort of brighter, more kind of vacation land sort of times. So this collection weirdly is quite on point. But, you know, America, there was this era of outdoor socialising. The pool became, you know, the sort of epicentre of all great socialisation. And so you've got these amazing Art Deco-inspired, glamorous, pools and hotels being developed with enormous outdoor facilities and you know people would lie in beautiful sweetheart bikinis and polka dots sipping on colorful cocktails being served by penguin waiters and you know for me I love Americana nostalgia it's a sort of theme that has always oh my god I've literally got like a shiver down my spine kind of Montana and cowboys and rodeos or whether it's Miami sort of neons and cocktails and poolside there's something about it that like I'm actually I wearing like, some neon stripes here totally, in you know if you like the whimsical and if you like kind of narrative I feel that although you know so many people say America is so devoid of like ancient culture 
to some extent that's true but you know obviously there were huge amounts of important indigenous you know sort of populations and civilizations that did populate and colonize before we ever came along but you know in more recent history you know whether it's Hollywood or otherwise you know it's very rich in that sort of tapestry so Florida kind of sets the scene for this tropicalia pastel candy colored sweetheart necklaces polka dots penguin waiters theme and, and, and plastic fantastic obviously points to both the material but it also points to the culture because really the 1950s is the beginnings of what we would call like a sort of plasticness in culture the idolization of certain types of women what they looked like what their roles should be it was the birth decade of barbie which you know you can write whole theses about yeah. in terms of what that sort of relates to in terms of like plastic fantastic in terms of modern day plastic surgery and cosmetic surgery so you know it's a very kind of interesting era where a lot was going on it was sort of straddling the sort of woman as domestic goddess woman as like hollywood starlet you know it was it's a very interesting period of time and so you know the jewelry itself is bright it's bold there's a lot of beads and round shapes which echo the polka dot kind of motif there's a lot of heart motifs which obviously evoke the sort of sweetheart necklaces the colors obviously sort of pick up on that kind of candy art deco of miami gumballs cocktails interestingly one of the things that came out of outdoor entertaining was a great increase in the use of jello or gelatine style products and when we think of jello normally we think of like candy colored desserts and big towers of jello but in the 50s there was an obsession with actually inserting or setting savory objects inside transparent jello so you would have a bowl of salad set in aspic or lamb chop set in jello oh my goodness these, which sounds extraordinary but what? It was very popular for two reasons. One in which that you could transport the food from inside to outside very easily without it being blown away or without it being knocked down. So everything was like solidified in one mass. But secondly, it was a kind of show of wealth because not everyone had refrigerators. So these sort of weird things kind of crop up. But the way that I've set, sort of bear with me here, the way that I've set gemstones inside resin, again, resonates with this idea of setting objects within aspects. So I was really trying to like find pointers in culture that sort of tie back to this idea of plastic jewelry or using resin to set gemstones, which I think is probably one of the more unique aspects of what I'm doing, is that to the best of my knowledge, I can't find another jeweler that has, you know, explored this idea of setting gemstones in resin. And obviously there's some really great benefits to that. You can see the gemstone in the round. There's no metal that is obstructing the view of the gemstone. You create these amazing kind of stained glass window effects where, you know, you can set in layers so that you have gemstones in front of gemstones in front of gemstones to create different colors and different patterns. So it's been a lot of fun and experimentation, but I would definitely describe the jewelry as bold, as kind of colorful. One of the things about using vintage Lucite as well is that, you know, you talk about the colors that they came in. You know, anything is possible, but certainly with some of the rings where you've got vintage Lucite mounts set with gemstones, the colours of the bands actually evoke gemstone bands that are now more commonly used in jewellery. So the language that I've kind of recreated is not that far removed from giant fine jewellery as we know it today. It just happens to be using a different material as the band. So instead of gold or agate or malachite or, you know, sapphire, whatever it might be, it's plastic. But the visuals, the aesthetics actually have their roots in traditional fine jewellery. So I suppose what I'm trying to do is kind of convince people that 
you can have the same aesthetic. You just don't necessarily have to have the same price point. And I guess that's kind of one of my big bugbears with fine jewelry is that there always seems to be quite rigid rules around what sits in the fine jewelry sector. And I would like to open up the discussion or at least the playing field to say that, you know, why can't we be more nuanced? Why does something have to be black or white? And, you know, going back to your point about what you could create with costume jewelry and throughout the era is that often costume jewelry was much more design interesting than yes, traditional fine jewelry. If you're comparing like for like in terms of like narrative excitement or narrative integrity, costume jewelry, generally speaking, even like nowadays, although in the last 15 years, 10 years, I do think things have changed. It's so much more fun. Um, You know, we think about fine jewellery, you walk down Bond Street, you know, it's another carrot stone after another carrot stone after another diamond necklace after another diamond ring. These things have their merits if you're really interested in like collecting high value carrot weight gemstone And you can afford, and that you can afford it. And you can afford it. But if you're you're able to wear it. I mean, I was talking with one of the people that I've recently interviewed and I've said, you know, these amazing pieces of jewellery. And by the way, everyone out there, we're not (laughs) downplaying. No. Beautiful diamond jewelry. No, not at all. But a lot of this jewelry that is bought at auction or is bought on Bond Street is really never seen again. It's seen at very private dinner parties. A lot goes out to the Far East, and one feels nervous to wear it out and about. Whereas with something that is obviously costume jewelry or that is obviously less expensive, everyone can love it, you know, and you can wear jewelry for yourself and for other people. And, you know, you don't feel nervous about what might happen to you if you're out wearing a kind of diamond necklace or an enormous ring. I think there's much more like, a requirement in the 21st century, certainly in the last 10 years, to have jewellery that works hard for you in different ways and ways that Bond Street jewellery can't do anymore. And that's the times that we live in. I think there's a much greater emphasis at the moment on sort of narrative interest, dialogue, storytelling, enchantment, you know, taking someone on a journey with a piece of jewellery. And I think that unless you're talking about super exquisite, high value top of their game stones, where you can talk about the history of the mine that it came from, how it was cut all the rest of it you know why it's a record breaker why it's a really rare colored fancy diamond another pair of diamond studs is not going to change the world whereas you know some of the costume jewelry that was produced over the last hundred years and certainly I would like to think with my new collection there are pieces there that will start conversations and will get discussions going about where costume jewelry sits in the kind of canon of fine jewelry and whether it can be included not be included some of the designs are infinitely more kind of charming, not necessarily my own, but I'm talking about like in general. So there are definitely benefits to it that I think traditional diamond jewellery doesn't always compete with. Yeah, I completely agree. So we've talked about plastic. What do you tell mm. me about some of the gemstones that you have actually included? Are they predominantly semi-precious stones? Because you did mention a bit about a price point. And would you have felt able to set a kind of incredibly special diamond in resin? Because some people are quite rightly so in their own beliefs and stuff, very kind of precious about the quality of gemstones. And they might not mix a D flawless with agate, for example. Yeah. They're still gemstones. Whereas you're going one level more and you're putting, you know, beautiful gemstones with plastic. Yeah. 
So the majority of the gemstones I've used, you're right, are semi-precious. And that is for, first and foremost, for the reason that semi-precious gemstones are colourful. Yeah, and this exactly. collection needs colour because, you know, first and foremost, I design with narrative integrity in mind, with the theme in mind. So that conditions everything from the materials I use to the colours I use to the gemstones I use. Commerciality and that sort of side of things is second to me because I really want to sort of feel that when someone looks at the collection, immediately it feels right to the kind of theme that I've given it. The second consideration, obviously, of course, is that, you know, diamonds tend to be more expensive, as do sapphires, as do rubies. So instead of using rubies for pink, I've used more things like garnets, tourmalines and amethysts, because I am still, you know, a relatively small kind of like fish in the pond. And I do have to be more concerned about my finances than maybe, you know, a Hemelay or any other, you know, big fine jewellery house. And that's totally fine. You know, we live in a world thankfully, where there are more gemstones than you could ever imagine in all different rainbow colours. And I would say 90% of them are still completely underused by the sector. Luckily, I think people are beginning to kind of like embrace some of the more sort of different or unusual semi-precious stones. But, you know, largely speaking, there is still the top four and they're still given most airtime. But yeah, I've used everything from aquamarines to garnets, citrines, smoky quartzes, predominantly those that are kind of quite bright and bubbly and evoke the theme that we've been talking about. Most of them are set in nine karat gold or 18 karat gold, because what I wanted to do was to make sure that these vintage lucite pieces or vintage plastic pieces were elevated to the kind of fine jewellery echelons because I think that there's no point creating a collection of plastic jewellery if you can't somehow push the boundaries of whether or not it sits in one camp or the other and I'm also trying to prove that plastics and lucite jewellery can be seen as timeless and one of the reasons that costume jewellery did start to fall out of favour in the kind of 1970s generally speaking was that there was this wave of feeling that they were no longer timeless. And the minute that jewellery doesn't feel timeless or can't be seen as timeless anymore, it gets relegated to the back of a cupboard or it gets sold on or it gets abandoned or whatever it might be. And I don't want these pieces to go through a second round of decreasing kind of value. I really want them to be seen as something that should be passed on as all good costume jewellery should. So it was important to me that I kind of played with high material, low material and, you know, used really great semi-precious stones so that they can be seen as precious, timeless objects. Would I set a really important D flawless diamond in 18 karat gold in a resin band? A hundred percent. You know, and my dream scenario out of this collection would be to get a bespoke client who sees what I do and comes to me with an idea or a proposal to set, you know, a really fabulous emerald or a really great sapphire, a really great diamond and create a really fab piece of vintage lucite jewelry. And, you know, I go crazy searching all my suppliers for a great mount or a great ring, a great bracelet, whatever it might be, 100% I would, you know, and, and that actually in some ways would be ultimate testament that there's appetite in the market for doing that. Well, I'm just imagining an enormous fancy yellow diamond in a kind of purple resin. In mega. And I think probably one of the kind of most relevant fine jewellery designers to compare that to would be Taffin, because although he doesn't work with resin, he works with ceramic and enamel. Again, two materials that are not traditionally seen as high material or high grade but in recent history in the jewelry industry both that and aluminium have become extremely popular as the basis for fine jewelry mounts or fine jewelry settings and um, Hemily so too Hemily I mean Hemily, again, bronze. Incredible. they use yeah. amazing 
um, unusual materials yep. in, in their jewels with beautiful gemstones. So I'm just imagining myself lying by a pool in Miami, not 50 years ago, but in September. Yeah. <laughs> what would you advise me out of all of your pieces of jewellery? Which is your top three most inspired kind of Miami pieces? Okay, well, I think that if you were feeling, I'm going to assume that you're sort of feeling in a kind of plastic, fantastic, whimsical mood. Um, Absolutely. No children around. No children um, around. Pina Clada at sort of, you know, nine in the morning is your breakfast smoothie, <laughs> that kind of thing. And you were wearing some sort of fabulous sort of polka dot sweetheart style bikini. Then I think that there's always a time and a place for really big statement jewelry. And there's some really big statement earrings in my collection. And, you know, yeah. Lucite is wonderful and resin is wonderful in the sense that it's lightweight, so you can do that. But I think that if you're by the pool, I would go for something like our gumball earrings because their statement, they're still big, but they're not so big that you wouldn't want to spend the whole day like lounging by the pool and kind of like dipping in the water, coming back out. And of course, the great thing about lucite plastic jewellery when you pair it with nine karat gold or 18 karat gold is that the pool is not such a problem anymore. Okay. You don't have to worry about it because essentially plastic is one of those things that is your bucket and spade material. So the reason why sometimes costume jewellery can't go in sort of chlorine or you know salt water and other things is because some of the objects within them some of the certain metals etc don't like being played around with chemicals but when you're just using straight up plastic and 18 karat gold not such a problem so I would definitely put you in the gumball earrings I would definitely give you one of our heart-shaped rings which has got either a sort of pink amethyst or purple amethyst because I think that you know that's just kind of fabulous with our pink gumball earrings maybe you might want to stack our kind of tortuga cuffs on one of your wrists and that I think would probably be enough because one of the things that I believe in when it comes to jewellery is if you're wearing really great jewellery and I prefer chunky and I prefer bold design it doesn't have to always be colorful you know I'm a big fan of some of the more monochromatic or subtle sort of neutral colored stones like brown agates um, etc but I do think that if you're wearing good jewelry you don't need to layer on you can get a lot of weight and a lot of punch by a pair of really great earrings and a ring you know I, I'm not one of those people that is sort of incessant about layering on endless bracelets and endless necklaces and wearing kind of like five different rings or two different rings you know if you're wearing something that's really a story in itself which I think good jewelry should be you don't always need more than just a pair of earrings and a ring you really don't because they're enough to kind of carry you through so you know on a general basis I don't wear more than just a pair of earrings and a ring because I just don't feel you need to my god I'm gonna book my flights very quickly oh my (laughs) we'll be there together without our little girls and my son now one thing I realized I didn't ask you is about the lucite that you use and you've spoken I mean obviously sustainability upcycling recycling of materials clothes what have you is incredibly vital as David Attenborough tells us for the environment but also you know for our consciousness it's incredibly important can you tell me how you've gone about finding the lucite are you talking about you've gone to I hate to say charity shops or found on eBay discarded pieces of lucite jewelry and then you've melted it down or you've reused for example lucite beads that we used in a necklace in the 70s how have you actually gone about the creation and the using of the lucite and is lucite the only plastic that you've been using or are there any others so the majority is vintage lucite and i found those mainly through things like ebay there are dealers niche dealers that do collect 
costume jewellery or Bakelite or Lucite jewellery from the 20s and then from the 40s, 50s, etc. So after a bit of digging, you know, you can find them. They don't tend to be particularly sort of glamorous enterprises. But, you know, there is still a number of people, yourself included, around the world who like retro vintage costume jewellery. So there is a demand for it amongst, you know, those who are kind of passionate about it. And there are people, you know, like yourselves who actually do make a business out of it. And you can't really melt down vintage lucite because the plastics were different in those days instead what I've done is I've looked for pieces that I can appropriate and upcycle as they already are so they have to be the right shape they have to be the right ring size for example with a ring mount the right color I have to be able to drill them in the way that I want to drill them if they're beads I have to be able to use them in a kind of design that I've come up with some of the pieces I've found the mounts and designed around and other times I've looked for a mount or a fitting or a bead that fits a design I've already had in my head so you know there was a lot of kind of rooting around but I would kind of compare it to fishing around a vintage market in the Parisian sunshine something like that very glamorous but not glamorous at the same time and there is a lot out there there is endless plastic lucite vintage cuffs endless ring mounts endless bangles of course bit being vintage the one thing that you know we had to be very careful about was the quality and the condition not that easy always to get scratches out of vintage lucite or vintage plastic so you know we had to really kind of make sure that the the, the quality and the condition that these things came in were really good but you know they are there and that's why I think that if this collection goes well what I'd really like to do is kind of continue to add to the pieces because if I can breathe new life into largely abandoned or discarded plastic mounts and beads and all the rest of it then that is a sustainable approach to jewelry making now of course there's other components to that jewelry making that are less sustainable because you know the minute you start handcrafting gold or this or that you know there's always going to be an environmental cost to that but certainly kind of being able to create timeless pieces from plastic that is you know not used right now or not loved feels like a good balance you know feels like it's doing something sort of vaguely sort of saintly and yes there are other plastics so not everything is lucite we have appropriated vintage chain as well which I would call your more kind of like traditional acrylic you know everything ultimately is plastic but you know over the decades we have given different names to different plastics yeah you know Bakelite is obviously your original you know 1907 onwards discovery and that tends to acquire a, a higher premium because it tends to be more collectible at times than than vintage lucite that was much more mass market bakelite is still kind of more niche in some ways but yeah you can find the stuff you know and it doesn't take very long to start looking for it either is there any kind of plastic that you've appropriated that it hasn't come from jewelry i mean for example trafari yeah. used windshields to create these jelly bellies have you used a windshield to create no, so <laughs> i haven't i haven't like, a bumper like vintage lucite and then cut it down myself I have definitely looked for objects or things that can be very easily or immediately appropriated into jewelry so I found a pair of miniature vintage plastic salmon that have gone into our Riviera earrings we used a lot of vintage um, sewing pin heads as the kind of fittings for some of our earrings and cuffs. So we have used products from like domestic kind of settings, vintage wallpaper, although that's not plastic, but we've used that again in the Riviera earrings. But no, I haven't tried to melt down or cut 
too much I've tried to find like almost the finished article in whatever shape it was and then built around that just for ease and simplicity to be honest and also just to have something that kind of felt like it came from the right decade but just kind of upcycled absolutely and one almost last thing how many pieces are in the collection it's about 35 if you take all the different kind of colorways. So probably individual designs, you're looking at about 18 and then a few of them have different variations to them. And I think that that kind of feels about right. I mean, when I first started designing jewelry, I was very, very strict about kind of closing a collection at the point in which you launched it and presenting it as it was and as it should always be. Whereas nowadays, I'm a bit more kind of flexible about adding to things. And, you know, a couple of years later, kind of putting something in in a different color way because I feel that one should respond to popularity and one should also respond more kind of intuitively and organically to like your kind of design whims and not be so sort of static so I have learned to kind of relax a little bit so it's quite possible that over the next year or so if it all goes well and it is popular that you know I'll add like new designs because I still have some mounts sitting in a box that we just didn't have the finances to kind of create into pieces of jewelry you know I'm launching with five unique rings I would have loved to have made 10 if I could or like just endless amounts you know that as a designer you could always go on and on and on and on but you know you've got to stop at some point so yeah about 35. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. And Tessa, where will they be available? They'll be available, obviously, on your website. Yep. So they'll be available online. We only sell online and by private appointment. Obviously, yeah. our Instagram account is, you know, a pretty good place to, to sort of see what's new and upcoming. And you can shop from there as well. But we don't have a sort of physical store. So it's very much drop us an email or, you know, head online and get there. And if someone has, for example, in their jewellery box or knowing costume jewellery in a kind of, sadly, in a cardboard box in the back of cupboard, any extraordinary kind of colourful pieces that they will never wear, but would perhaps like to be teamed alongside a beautiful aquamarine ring that they also don't use. Obviously, they can get in touch with you and you can maybe kind of come up with some new designs, bespoke designs. 100% and it doesn't even have to be colourful I mean the thing that I would also say is that you know if you've got like a black bangle sitting in a box or you've got a mock tortoiseshell ring sitting in a box or whatever it might be you know you pair that with a really great citrine or like a splattering of white diamonds um, you know whatever it might be you will elevate that piece to something that you can wear as an everyday cocktail ring and I am a big fan of the everyday cocktail ring because I think that in people's heads they kind of sort of say you know only after six o'clock will I put that on and I kind of call bullshit I don't know if I can swear on this podcast or not, but I do bullshit on it because, you know, if you wear a white shirt, pair of jeans and a great cocktail ring and you go out for lunch, like that ring will make that outfit look a million dollars. I wore this morning in Tesco, having dropped my daughter off at nursery, I did a Tesco shop in an enormous panetta, which is my favourite costume jeweller. Enormous aquamarine surrounded by diamonds. Of course, it was costume, so sadly it wasn't a real aquamarine. And actually, this lovely old lady came up to me. She said, oh, you better be careful. You don't want anyone pinching that. Sweet. <laughs> um, I did um, tell her that it wasn't you're real. You're absolutely looked- right, because like, jewellery is meant to be for wearing, and I'm not saying get your kind of you know, 10 carat D flawless diamond out when you go to Tesco's, but I'm certainly saying that like one of the great benefits, as you identified early on in the podcast, with using vintage lucite or resin for jewellery is that you pair it with gemstones it looks a million dollars but 
you're not going to have that ring ripped off your finger anytime soon because it kind of looks a bit like costume. But, you know, when someone starts digging and asking you a question because they can't quite understand, is it or isn't it? And I think that's the bit that I'm really interested in, you know, already, you know, with all the kind of press I've talked to about the collection and clients I've shown, give them a sneak peek before the 1st of May, you know, what intrigues them is that they're getting something that looks really smart, but they can't understand the price point. It's like, you know, yes, there is a world beyond what you know, and we yeah. can create really fun things that look really smart, but don't cost a packet. And, you know, at the end of the day, why do people go to Zara to buy a really smart looking tweed jacket? Because they want the same look as Chanel, but they don't want the price tag. So exactly. I think we should be less concerned these days about where something comes from in terms of like brand and more concerned about what it looks like and is it sustainable and can it be seen as something long term? Well, I've got an enormous stitching brooch that came from my great great grandmother and it's got cultured pearls around I mean it is really really big and I've worn it as a brooch quite a few times but actually I feel it's so amazing that I want to have it as a bracelet a bit of a kind of Vedora type so I'm going to be sharing a picture of it with you and we can come up with something amazing Wonderful. I'm so excited. Listen, Tessa, we've got to go because as with everyone on my podcast, I could talk all day, but I don't know how many people will stay logged in for this long if we keep talking. Well, it's of course they will. It's been a pleasure anyway. And it's, um, just... it's been such fun talking um, costume and plastic jewellery and all the rest of it. And thank you very much for having me. No, thanks, Tessa. And yeah, I'm going to be sending you a picture of that citrine now. <laughs> Great. Can't wait. <laughs> oh, lots of love. Thanks. Bye. 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 <laughs>